Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. My guest today is a food writer's food writer. Beloved by such luminaries as Nigella Lawson, Diana Henry and Yota Motolenghi, B. Wilson may be a best-selling food writer and newspaper columnist. She has published, after all, seven books and currently writes the popular table talk column for the Wall Street Journal. But she's also a home cook with her own fair share of mess and imperfection. Bee understands the anxiety so many of us share around food and cooking it, and how actually getting a meal on the table is about so much more than what that meal is. In her new book, The Secret of Cooking, Bee shares a lifetime of cooking secrets that will make even the most culinary phobic, by which I mean me, feel a glimmer of interest in doing something with a recipe book other than read it. Soon after I was first married, one of the books I was cooking out of was River Cafe Cookbook. And I'd written all these things, like made this, and I'd written my husband's name, and I'd written what he thought of it. I was being quite bossy with that cookbook. Bee joined me to talk candidly about how cooking brought her back to herself after the trauma of unexpected divorce, and how she came around to seeing that separation as a gift. We also discussed overcoming disordered relationships with food, cooking as a love language, getting back in touch with your greedy inner child, and why everybody needs a spider. Never want to overlook a shopping opportunity. I've already bought one. Tell me a little bit about your kitchen, because it's obviously a really important room to you. Can you describe it for us? Yeah, I can describe it. It's quite, I would say it's quite a scruffy kitchen considering I'm a food writer. I'm always looking around it thinking, oh, I would sort of change lots of things if I started from scratch. But at the same time, it is my favourite room of the house and 
just got so many good memories associated with it. So it's quite small and kind of narrow. What I love about my kitchen is everyone that comes to the house says, oh, that must be an extension, but it's not. It was just how I live in an Edwardian house and it was just kind of built this way that it has all of the houses along the street have, it looks like a sort of extension into the garden. And some people who were living here long before us put in Velux windows. So there's light. So what I love about my kitchen is if you come down at the right time of day and it's the right kind of day, you get these beautiful shafts of light just falling on the kitchen table. I have a slightly rickety kitchen table that I've had for more than 20 years. I keep thinking, should I replace that? But then it is associated with so many memories and I've rolled so many bits of pasta and pastry on that table. And then I've got kind of just like, like I say, it's sort of scruffy. I've got some big wooden shelves, which have all my plates and bowls and things on. And then I have a few things hanging up like chopping board, which is round, which I use for pizza and various spiders. Like I write in the cookbook about the fact that I'm obsessed with this utensil called the spider. Um, and I think I have about four of them in different designs. Some of them hanging on the walls, some of them in a utensils pot near the, near the hob. I was going to ask you about spiders because when I, I was reading the book, I didn't know what a spider was. So I saw, you know, you've talked about all the jargon in, in cookbooks and how we don't know what you're yeah, talking about most of the time. And then you start talking about something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you start talking about spiders and I was thinking, well, there's a case <laughs> in point. And then by the end of that, you know, that section on spiders, and you're going to have to explain what a spider is now for your audience. Um, I've li- I've put two in my basket on oh, Amazon. I feel like I need I'm one. So happy. I haven't bought it yet, but I do feel like I need it. Can you just explain what a spider is? Because I think the bulk of people listening will be going, what the hell is yeah, a spider? And it goes under different names. I mean, some people would call it a skimmer, but essentially what it is, is a long utensil that's a handle with a sort of small sieve on the end. And there's versions of them that you can just pick up for a few pounds in a Chinese or Korean supermarket. Because in Asian, many, many Asian cooking cultures, they would be used as a device for deep frying or indeed for boiling. But what it's amazing for, I write about in the book as apropos of the fact that so often instructions in a cookbook will say, drain the pasta. They don't actually say how. There's a kind of assumption that you'll probably do it using a colander, which is fine. But if you're clumsy like me, you're lifting this heavy, heavy pan of pasta and water and you're taking it across the kitchen. And there is a better way, which is that if you have a spider and you're cooking short pasta, you just scoop it out. And the beauty is it's got some of that starchy pasta water still clinging to it. Scoop it out, put it straight into the sauce. It's better. It's better and it's easier. And anytime I find something like that in the kitchen, I think it's golden. I also use it for all sorts of things, like just I've alluded to boiling. Like if I am going to just quickly blanch some vegetables, so easy because again, you just pick them out. It's sort of, it's one of those tools that feels like an extension of the hand. Yeah, it's, it's, see, you definitely made it sound like one of those things that you didn't realize you needed until you have one and then you can't work out how you ever lasted without exactly. one. Exactly. It's like I remember quite early on when I'd properly, properly started cooking after I'd left home, getting my first pair of kitchen tongs. And those were a bit the same. I kind of thought, how did I cook without tongs? Like, it's just so handy to have something that you can pick stuff up with or stir stuff or do multiple things at once without quite thinking about it. And the spider, aka skimmer, is totally like that. Like once, I swear, once, well, I hope, once you have your two one or two spiders you won't look back 
tell us a bit about where your how your relationship with food and cooking developed because you're not a cook are you by training or kind of academically I mean you studied politics didn't you like me I I did I studied politics I studied history for my first degree and then politics for my master's and PhD so yeah absolutely miles removed from cooking except that one of the components I did at some point when I was studying in the States was about food history. And I sort of feel like if you've got a training in how to research stuff, you can make a leap into anything. I mean, that's how I would justify the fact I've had quite a long career in food <laughs> writing without actually having a background in it. I did go on MasterChef a long time ago, but that's absolutely not the same as going to culinary school. What made you do that? Actually, my ex-husband, who in the context of the book I write about, about my cooking life and life in general changed a lot because he left at the end of the first lockdown during the pandemic. Anyway, years and years ago when things were very happy and new and we just got married and I was just cooking like crazy all the time. I'd always loved food. So in answer to your question, where does it come from? I grew up just being a greedy child and sitting at the kitchen table reading my mum's cookbooks, which were things like Maddie Jeffrey and Jane Griggs and then didn't have that many opportunities to cook as a student. I'd probably cook more than the average student, but still you're really hampered by just having one of those kitchens where if there even is an oven, it burns everything and you're sharing the space with other students. You kind of feel a bit weird about cooking in that space, I think. But I'd, I got married very young and I was cooking obsessively. How old were you? Yeah, no, you can. I'm, tra- I, I'm trying to, it was 1997. I was terrible. I've reached the age where I just have, I can't remember anything. Yeah. My maths is also not great. I was 23, I think, when we got married. Can that be right? That seems very young. It's strange. It does now, doesn't it? It seemed young yeah. then. No, I was 19 when we met, which is insanely young. 23 when we got married. And just to have my own kitchen felt like this incredible luxury. And I was cooking masses for our wedding. I'd been given things like Gordon Ramsay cookbooks that now I, after you have kids, I don't know, almost never attempt things like that. But back then I'd be making kind of shellfish stock from scratch and jus and all kinds of things just for a garnish. Good luck. I know, not my style of cooking now, but my now ex-husband said, oh, we were watching MasterChef one day and just said, oh, you're really good. Why don't you enter? So I did. And <laughs> I didn't expect to get as far as I got. Managed to get to the semi-final. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I, was, I was really pleased. And it was like lots of, I was going to say like lots of women, like lots of people, I think we could almost broaden it out more than that. I'd always suffered from imposter syndrome in my life. And I'd always done well academically, but I always would think, oh, well, probably the examiners made a mistake. They probably actually just muddled up my exam paper with someone else's. I bet it wasn't really that good. And then cooking, I just vividly remember this about the whole MasterChef experience, because even before you get on TV, there's a non-televised cook-off. It was so exciting and sort of empowering because I made these things. And then the person who was deciding who would get through to be on TV tasted them and he really liked them. And I thought, oh, he can't be lying about that. That isn't the sort of thing you lie about. Why would he? Like he's actually choosing out of all of us here. And it was this really great moment where I realized as much as I do have quite an academic background, there's something about the sensory qualities of food where it's true in a way that very few other things in life are. And so I think that's actually one of the things I have found magical about cooking ever since. Was that something, was that the case in your family in your childhood or not really? It was and it wasn't. So I think in my childhood, there were sort of two 
phases with food. There was phase one, which was kind of up to, find it really hard to say, maybe up to about the age of 12 for me, where food was just this happy, glorious, greedy thing. My mum was a very good cook in a sort of traditional British Delia Smith kind of way. There was lots of sort of stews and dumplings, lots of roast dinners. And then I've written about this elsewhere, not in a cookbook. My sister developed anorexia. And then when you have one person in the family who's really unhappy around food, everything changes. The whole ecology of the dinner table changes. And then when I was 14, my dad left. My mum's relationship was, I'm like now as a divorced person myself, I so sympathize with me back. It was as if all of the cooking had been for him. The way she cooked completely changed. Um, Her repertoire just shrank right down to kind of just bowls of brown rice with some vegetables and grated cheese on top. And I now see she was heartbroken. But for me, as this greedy person who'd been quite attached to these meaty, savory, delicious things she'd made, it was kind of multiple forms of loss at once. And because my, I don't want to put it on her, actually. My sister's relationship with food became disordered and mine did too in different ways. I was more kind of binge eating and then restricting and dieting and just all those things that so many people do. And then I'm just so grateful. It's one of the sort of biggest things I'm grateful for in my life that at a certain point, it just stopped. That angry voice switched off inside my head. Like I haven't been on a diet in, I don't know how long, not since my early 20s. And it's just so lovely to be kind of back to being that greedy child, except that greedy child didn't really know about vitamins or vegetables. Or like I do want to eat food, broadly speaking, that makes me feel good. So I do eat lots of things that are quote unquote healthy, but not in a self-punishing way. And I feel that that's a kind of, really great sweet spot to reach if you can somehow find a way. Can you put your finger on how you found a way? Because it's quite, you know, like you said, a lot of people do go through that sort of thing in their teens, but never really shake it off. It's something I thought a lot about. A a while ago, I wrote a book called First Bite, which is about where eating habits start, where they come from, why we're so different from childhood onwards. Can they change? When I began writing that book, I thought I was trying to unravel the question of why my three children ate so differently. Not specifically my three children, but that was what provoked the question. Why within a single family can you have two people apparently eating in exactly the same conditions and yet you've got one of them that's incredibly picky and another who's adventurous and just these wildly divergent views. And all of the research showed me that it's partly nature, partly nurture. But then as I began writing it, I hadn't intended to write about myself really at all. I began thinking back to being a very unhappy teenager and how miserable and lonely. And it's just makes me deeply sad for the millions of people around the world right now who are going around the supermarket trying to buy something for dinner and in this state of doubting yourself and punishing yourself around food and feeling shame and guilt for eating when eating is the most natural thing in the world. And how did it change? A few things happened. One is that my palate quite genuinely, I honestly think that one of the biggest problems with food is that we put health food in one category and pleasurable food in another category. If you can reach the point where you actually crave broccoli, I mean, everyone always says broccoli is example, but substitute any other green vegetable that you like. You don't have to like broccoli. Could be kale, could be spinach, could be anything. But when you positively want to eat those things, it's quite easy to eat them because there's an urge. Whereas when you've told yourself you should eat that, 
because it's low in carbs or high in fiber or low in fat or whatever the particular fad is. I mean, I remember when I went on diets, I'd feel hungry before I'd actually had the first breakfast. I'd say, okay, Monday, I'm starting a diet now. And it'd be crazy. Like, why was I feeling hungrier? I hadn't had breakfast Mm. yet. It's a mindset. I was already in that punishing mindset. The bigger question is how you get out of that punishing mindset. And I think that's different for everyone because you've got to look at your reasons. If you're eating in a disordered way now, you have to think, what is it you're trying to do with that? And all of it, it's hard to talk about without sounding like just going into platitudes about self-care. But I really think being kinder to yourself is a big part of it. I remember it's funny now in the context, again, of being someone where that relationship turned out to end. But when I was doing the book tour for First Bite, I, I, it's a subject I could talk about forever, actually, the psychology of eating. And I'd give these talks and then I'd have people at the end quite often come up to me and say very heartfelt things about their own relationship with food and how difficult it was. Usually when I was telling the story then of how things changed for me, I would say, I fell in love. Now, now somehow that that relationship has gone it doesn't seem like mm. such a happy ending but I remember this young woman <laughs> in San Francisco coming up to me saying well I'm kind of a binge eater at the moment but do I have to fall in love to stop being <laughs> and I thought okay I need to broaden that out because really again it does sound like a cliche but you sort of have to find a way to love yourself one of the formulae I have in that book I also wrote a tiny tiny book which came out of that one called this is not a diet book one of the pieces of advice, which I would stand by, I hesitate to give anyone advice because it's so personal what you put in your mouth. But if you can try to feed yourself as if you're a kind parent feeding a child in their own best interests, that begins to give you a sense of, okay, well, you're, you're not going to just give your child junk food every day. You're going to set some limits. But equally, you're going to want that child to enjoy themselves when they're eating. I mean, that's the part of the picture that I think is so often missing. And it's obviously... The advice completely depends on you know, people who are far, far down that disordered relationship with food who need professional help. And I'm not saying just be a bit kind to of yourself is always the answer. If people are listening, thinking, no, that isn't going to cut it, then I absolutely agree and sympathize. But I'm saying for a lot of us, if we're in a state of just thinking, I don't have permission to eat, a good place to start is giving yourself permission. It's interesting. Isn't it? I noticed um, in the book a phrase, is it disordered feeding, mm. which I just thought was really, really fascinating to approach it that way instead of disordered eating. Yeah, it can be both. I, I allude to it in the new book, The Secret of Cooking, the cookbook. I have a tiny section on feeding children. And there I'm addressing the thing that so many parents grapple with. And I did with my third child of what do you do when you have a child that just won't eat or only wants beige foods or just won't try vegetables or tries them. And then suddenly for years on end, acts like you're giving them poison. And I I hadn't realized before I researched First Bite, the extent to which there's essentially many, many different forms of eating disorders, sadly. But there are the ones of which anorexia and bulimia would be examples, but they're not the only examples where it's also about someone's relationship with their body weight and size and self-perception and they're fundamentally trying to lose weight. And then there are these other ones, selective eating disorder is what is sometimes called in the literature, which is if you just imagine a picky child, but imagine a severely, severely picky child, where it's not at all to do with sort of someone worrying about the size of their upper thighs, It's a deep, deep deep-seated fear of the food itself, the textures, the colors, the smells, the thought that different things might touch. 
And that's a really difficult thing to grapple with if you're a parent, especially if, I was going to say, especially if you've never been picky yourself. I think it's equally difficult either way. Yeah. It's, yeah it's, I mean, that's, we could talk about that for an hour and that would, or probably a day, yeah. actually. Um, would you mind um, if we talk a little bit about the kind of the life event that, if you like, spawned the book when your husband left you in, uh, in during, lo- during lockdown, around June lockdown? June 2020. So it was just at the end of the first lockdown. I, all of my memory at that time was a little bit hazy. I have to keep sort of Googling. When did the lockdown end? <laughs> I'm tallying at the beginning. Yeah. No, that was the day he left. Yes. Yes. So this was, I'd begun work on this project and I knew the title of it was The Secret of Cooking and I knew I wanted to write about different ways to combine cooking and life and that I had this idea that so far from being this impossible thing on our to-do lists or this thing that we complain about quite a lot, myself included, that cooking can also be something that soothes us or salves us at hard times. And then life threw me in this very hard time and it actually showed me the truth of these things I'd already begun to write better than anything could have done. Yeah. So my husband, of we'd been together. Well, yeah, again, I lose track of time, but we'd been together since I was 19 and I was probably about 46 when he left. Um, we'd been married 23 years, had three children. Total shock. I mean, I think when you've been together a very long time, maybe not everyone, but I had certainly adjusted expectations of what a happy relationship looked like. So it didn't feel like we were in a state where it was about to end. And suddenly out of the blue, he's gone. And then a couple of months later, dropped off a letter telling me about the other woman. Yeah. Cooking changed, life changed, everything changed. The fact that I have a whole section in the book devoted to washing up is partly, I used to always do most of the cooking, but he did most of the washing up, for which I was really grateful. And suddenly thinking, you know, it's not the hardest thing in the world, but thinking in a grief stricken state, everything's quite hard. So having to come down in the morning, having been crying a lot the night before, I've got to empty this blinking dishwasher all over again. Yeah, I, I, that sounds like such a privileged problem. It started me thinking about the fact that when people say they don't like cooking, so often what they're saying is they just don't like the washing up. Yeah, all the stuff around it. All the stuff around it. And I suddenly realised, I'm speaking to myself as much as to other people in large sections of this book, actually it's, it's a sad thing if you're constantly feeling resentful about washing up. Because if you want to enjoy cooking, and I think to enjoy cooking, one of the great joys of life, I mean, as you say, you're not the cook in your family. Somebody in the house enjoys cooking by the sounds of things. To have someone in the house who enjoys cooking is a very beneficial thing for everyone at that table. And if you're constantly thinking that washing up is an oppression and a terrible thing, which is kind of how I used to feel, you're not going to enjoy it so much. So one of my thoughts is that maybe to kind of develop your own system of washing up and kind of make your peace with it. And this was from my lived experience because I had not done a good enough job before then of teaching the kids how to do the washing up. And they're realizing at that point, it was my two younger kids who were at home. My older one was locked down somewhere else where he was a student. Just thinking, okay, we've got to do it together. We're going to put some great songs on Spotify. We're going to dance around the kitchen. And our standards kind of rose to the point where now, when my son, who was a student when all of this was going on, comes back home, I can see him kind of stacking the dishwasher in a slightly different way. And he hasn't quite He's not up to speed with our new standards. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you're the, what you just described of the way your mother's approach to cooking changed when your father left, did that affect the way you approached it when your husband left? It's really hard to say. I mean, I, I definitely had my parents' divorce in mind from the very moment 
he left because I'd sort of, as a child of divorce, I thought this is never going to happen to me. And I now think how deluded you can be and you should never take a relationship for granted because all of those things people say, yeah, you can think something's fine because you're not arguing. And actually there's many, many other markers by which you can judge whether a relationship is working. And you look back and you can see so many danger signs, but it's, it was, it was the biggest shock of my life when it happened. But from day one of him leaving, I'm kind of glad to say that my instinct was the opposite of my mum's. My instinct was to cook. And my instinct was to cook both for myself and for the kids. And it was partly, I look back to those kind of fragile, raw first weeks. I remember just thinking, I could see that my daughter had already twigged something before I told her she was 17. So I realized we needed to tell her quite soon. But then trying to think, how on earth am I going to tell the 11-year-old? And trying to just, being aware that whatever I said in that moment, you never forget that moment when someone, when parents say, they're not going to be together. So I remember thinking very carefully about the cakes I was going to bake for him, which his older brother was going to whisk him away and hand to him after we'd had the conversation on the sofa. I remember thinking very clearly, I mean, we ate, we always eat a lot of pancakes and waffles. We ate a lot of waffles as we were going through that process because it was sometimes just felt like, don't know what to say to them. Okay, I'll make waffles. Life is better when you've had waffles in the morning. And it had this weird knock-on effect for me, which I write about in the book, of I was often quite shaky. I could, I mean, physically shaky. I could just sometimes feel as if my whole body was trembling slightly. And then I was in the kitchen and you're holding on to things. You're physically grasping things in the kitchen. And just holding on to my mother's wooden spoon made me feel weirdly stronger. Physically taking eggs and butter and one of my main waffle recipes has roasted hazelnuts and milk and seeing them turn by this process of alchemy into these beautiful, golden, sweet-smelling grids that I could then give to my son and then eat some for myself, even if I had no appetite because waffles are there, so I'm going to eat. It did, it did so many things for me at once. It was great. It made me feel less useless. So no, I, there was never a point really, other than, yes, okay, there were points when, when you were just feeling super sad. Well, even if you're not feeling super sad, there are nights when you want to have a takeout for sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I read a, a piece, I think it was one you wrote about last year sometime for The Guardian, where you say the day after my husband first said he didn't love me anymore, I made a Nigella recipe for Parmesan French toast. Yes. I think, and that's like, I mean, that's basically eggy it bread, is, isn't it? It is totally eggy bread, except Nigella makes it even better by adding Parmesan and Worcester sauce. Mm. And it's just this giant, wonderful kind of wobbling, eggy, golden fried thing. And how can you not feel better after you've eaten that? And for me, that's a childhood thing. Like my kids, especially my daughter, have more adopted the kind of American French toast thing where you have it with icing, sugar and cinnamon or a bit of maple syrup. But for me, eggy bread is what my mum used to make for a kind of really simple dinner, basically. For you, is it eating or the cooking that's healing or comforting or or both? The, the thing that constantly surprises me is that even if you take the eating out of it, you can feel fed by cooking, by the processes of it, which I find quite a strange thing. But I've had conversations with Diana Henry when I've interviewed her about her cookbooks, and she says exactly the same thing, that sure, there's days where I mean, a lot of the recipes in my book again, kind of designed for myself as newly a single mum trying to cook in a hurry and things like sauces that you can, delicious curry sauces you can make, stash in the freezer and pull out when you need a meal that's going to take you 10 minutes. 
sometimes what you actually need is more leisurely cooking, chopping herbs and that kind of feeling that wonderful scents and smells and sizzling noises are happening. And I think you can feel fed by that process itself. Um, Not every day. You don't feel like doing it every day. You don't have time necessarily for that kind of leisurely cooking every day. And then the eating is the eating's really important too. I remember years ago interviewing someone who worked in cooking um, lessons for kids in schools and saying where she thought people went wrong was thinking that you should just kind of give kids stuff they can make a mess with and then you end up with some rock buns and maybe they taste good or maybe they don't. And she was like, no, for children, the thing that's rewarding in cooking is making something that tastes really good. And I often bear that in mind that it's, yes, the process, the process of cooking is kind of lovely because it is kind of a childhood thing of mixing up potions. So it's kind of lovely, even if what you end up making isn't so good, but it's about a hundred times more satisfying if you make something that pleases the person eating, even if the only person eating is you. Would you say that cooking is, I don't know whether, I mean, it's a bit, it is a bit cringy, but you know, that whole love language theory about your five different love languages. Would you say that cooking is yours? Cooking is definitely one of mine, I would say. Yes. It's how I express love for sure. And I look back and realize my ex-husband was never that interested in food. I mean, he liked my food, but he would say he'd be happy to eat the same thing every day. So maybe now that I've got a little bit of distance of time, I can think maybe he did me the biggest favor in the world because you kind of want to cook for people who appreciate it. It is definitely one of my love languages. I think particularly in my relationship with myself is what I've latterly realized that I've spent since my oldest child was born, 24 years cooking for other people, actually longer because I was cooking for my ex-husband before that. And so cooking for others comes completely naturally to me. I feel I can just kind of sink into it. Like, and equally for other family members, when my sister comes to stay and she eats in a completely different way from me, she's vegetarian, borderline vegan. But I, it gives me great pleasure to think, okay, I know she doesn't like half the things I like, but what are some things I can make that are really going to make her smile. That gives me immense pleasure. Yes. I was really interested by the thing you said, the fact that cooking, that when you were kind of at, at your worst and you cooking is the one thing that could bring you back to yourself. And in fact, to the person that you were before you met exactly. him. I think, I think it's probably one of the two things, another being music, because I think music is sort of probably the greatest carrier of memory that there is. But cooking, absolutely. You know, there's a bit I write where you, just what you said that I tried all sorts of things. I tried box sets on Netflix and just reminded me of watching box sets with him. And I tried books and novels can be the most amazing way to lose yourself. But I needed to be one notch happier for that to work. And I tried yoga and I do still do yoga every day, but doing yoga in an absolutely miserable state, you sort of don't necessarily <laughs> feel like you're doing the breathing in the most meditative way. Yeah. And I tried drinking slightly too much and that, yeah, it makes you feel good after the second glass and then you feel terrible the next day. But cooking was something that had this sort of compound effect and it was it had this amazing ability to make me feel I was time traveling. But because I was so young when I met him, it's a big chunk of my life that I'd been with this person. Everything in the house reminded me of him. The, the edge of the kitchen table, his place where he used to sit. Just I still have to sort of remember that bit of wood isn't his anymore. It's quite <laughs> odd how objects can get invested sort of imbued with another person. But through food, I could go back to the food my mum had cooked, you know, not just when I was 
a teenager, but back pre my dad leaving, I could cook these, have a recipe in the book called Chicken Stew for Tired People that's totally based on the flavor palette of things my mum made with loads of parsley and garlic and white wine. It was amazing to think, oh, this, this is other world out there. And equally, I could use food to travel to different places. So I've got a thing in the book that's based on something I've made on repeat for my kids so many times called, in the book, it's called Adaptable Ash, which is the name of a Persian soup. And I've never been to Iran, but I've got two or three books of Persian cookery on my shelves. And cooking has this amazing ability where you can sort of go to different places, even places that you've only read about. Yeah, I, you'll be delighted to hear I actually turned the corner over on Adaptable oh. Ash because I just thought I'm going to try that one. And I mean, I'm going okay. to try it. And I can't tell you what a big deal that is because I, I cook so very, very oh, little. I'm very honoured. Thank um, you. Yeah. At the same time all this was going on, your mother had dementia, didn't she? And am I... I think this is right. Was she? It was in a care home during lockdown. She was in a care home during lockdown. So I mean, it's it was a terrible year for 2020, 2021, and for lots of people, wasn't it? It was a very strange time for all of this to be happening because I was where everyone in the world was having a tough time. Yeah, my mother who had dementia and she died a year ago after I'd more or less finished work on the book. It's such a mixed thing when someone dies with dementia because you half feel relieved for them and then you just feel this. You suddenly start missing the person they were before the dementia so acutely. But yes, there was that going on too. And so in any case, I think food had been something where I was already really aware because of her dementia that we were never going to cook together again. And she had, she was a busy working mum, but she had done such a great job of kind of welcoming me into her kitchen. I being very tolerant of me from a young age where I was just trying to cook stuff and make a huge mess and waste all of her good ingredients. And I look back and I really treasure those memories. And it's, it's kind of amazing. You, you can't bring someone back. Of course you can't, but through food, you can get closer to it than you can in some other ways. And at a certain point, I was able to, I mean, there's a recipe in the book for, it's actually vegan. My mum wasn't vegan, but she was really fond of vegetarian food for a vegan pear and ginger cake. And my mum was obsessed with pears. And there was a point, I can't, I'm just losing track of all of the months, but there were whole months where the care home was completely shut down and you couldn't visit and you could only talk via Zoom, which is just crazy. To attempt a Zoom call with someone with dementia is doesn't work. It's not not happening. happening. Then no. we could visit, but I had to have a mask on and we were behind Perspex and she was just so confused as to what was going on. But then there was this magical, magical moment where you were actually allowed to go and drive and get your loved one and bring them home for a very short visit and then deposit them back. And she did taste this cake and it did make her smile. There's something, this is partly why I say music and food are the two, because I could see it on her that the two things that would trigger these glimmers of her old self when she had dementia were either playing her music and singing along to it. Like the, the week that she died, I put some Fred Astaire songs on, like Pick Yourself Up, Dust Yourself Off, Start All Over Again. And her toe started tapping underneath the blanket, which was so lovely. Pears or good slice of cake, those still did something, triggered something, something quite deep. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We put so much pressure on ourselves around food, don't we? I mean, there's the uh, the psychology of eating that we touched on earlier, but also that kind of pressure around cooking, you know, like, like I haven't got time or it's got to be perfect or, you know, just all the anxiety. We put huge pressure. Around. Absolutely. And I think the opening chapter is called Cut Yourself Some Slack. And I just think if there's one thing that would make you more likely to cook if you're someone that doesn't cook at the moment. You know, some people just say they hate cooking. It gives them no pleasure. I mean, each to their own. We're not all the same in this life. And thank goodness for that. But if you're someone who thinks, I wish I could cook more, but people are judging me, or it needs to be like a dinner party, or I'm not a chef. If you could just kind of banish all of those thoughts, find the way that works for you. Because really the secret of cooking, I mean, the, it's called the secret of cooking. The second half of that sentence is that the secret of cooking is the person who cooks. But what that means, I increasingly realized, is you've got to look after yourself in the kitchen. If there's some way of doing something that's going to just make your life easier, take it, do it. Forget all of those voices saying it should be like this or you haven't got the perfect Ottolenghi ingredients. You know, I've met Ottolenghi. He's a lovely man. He doesn't mind if you use the wrong spice. I have another section where I try to sort of talk about the fact that all recipes are incomplete and that you've got to somehow always be joining the dots a bit yourself. So I think along with cutting yourself some slack, learning to trust yourself, just to think, well, what do I want here? You've, at least one of your children still lives at home. So this probably doesn't apply. But one of the things that I've comes up a lot, I think, when I'm talking to women on the shift, and very many of them actually are divorced, either because they've gone, actually, I'm done here. Yeah. I'm done here. Or uh, much less frequently because their husband has left. But what, one of the things that comes up all the time, and again, I know you touch on this in the book, is that, well, I can't really be bothered, not just for me. And that's so negative. Mm. It's so much like I'm not mm. worth it. It's really, really sad. I mean, I think completely fair enough if you are one of those people. My sister's one of those people who thinks there's other things in life other than food. You know, she can make a delicious omelette if she wants to or some all sorts of other things. But 
cooking is not her priority. That's one thing. But if you're somebody saying it's not worth cooking if it's only just me or only only me, I think that's really sad because who could be a more important person to honor with food than yourself? And I have one of the chapters that I most enjoyed writing is called Be Your Own Guest. And I say you should try and treat yourself through food as if you're the most honored dinner party guest. And it's something I struggled with and had to teach myself to do after the divorce. But I was testing those recipes kind of in real time. And I felt so satisfied when I got there. So as my kids were going off to have dinner with their dad for the first time, and it felt like a completely alien thing of like, oh, I'm just here and I've got no one's picky eating to cater for for the first time in so long, which in a way was liberating. In another way, you think, well, who even am I in this kitchen if I'm not cooking for someone else? Yeah, and I think it's one of the reasons that's well that you know people fall back so much on ready meals. Totally. One of my favorite moments during the photo shoot for the cookbook, the young food stylist who's an absolutely brilliant cook and you can make all sorts of fancy things, but there's a one of the recipes in the cooking alone section, which is just it's based on a Claire Thompson recipe, but I tweaked it and made it simpler, where it's just some soft, cheesy polenta, and then you take two of the sausages, take them out of their skins, crumble them, cook them with a bit of chili, a bit of garlic, and some shredded cavolo nero. And then you add a little bit of vinegar at the end. And it's, if you like polenta, which not everyone does, it's so kind of comforting and bolstering, but also it tastes quite healthy because you've got those dark greens there. And the food stylist, Kitty, we'd, we'd made that. And then a couple of days later, she said, you know what, I came home and I was just so tired and I was about to ring for a delivery. And then I remembered your recipe and she had made it for herself. And she said it just for that moment made her feel better. And so that's my aim of what I'm aware there's other cookbooks out there that I could never aspire to be Otolenghi. I could never aspire to be a chef. But I hope that there are a few things there that might make someone who's in that point of thinking, oh, I'm going to have a ready meal. It's fine if you want a ready meal, but often it kind of feels like, oh, sod it. I guess I'll have a ready meal. Whereas yeah. you feel pretty great after you've made that something like that sausage and polenta for yourself because you think, well, I did that. And actually, there's only one pan to wash up. Not much difference really between... Even with a ready meal, you have to wash up the bowl and the knife and fork, don't you? How do you think you've changed over the last three or four years, kind of coming out of your you know, year of hell, really, in lockdown as well? I think I've changed. It's, it's so hard to analyse yourself from the inside, isn't it? I mean, actually, that is, I've been questioning things that probably I, when you're thrown something like that, you question everything. You're forced to question everything. And now that I'm through the hellish part of it, I'm really grateful for lots of that process. It Certain things I kind of knew already, but I was just shown so much more clearly that friendships are just some of the most valuable things you can have. And under those conditions where it was so hard to socialize, but there were certain women friends that I would walk my dog with, whether they had a dog or not. But that was, you know, at that point when you were only allowed to meet one other human being outside at a distance. And it was just, it was a godsend. It was something I was so grateful for. It just forged friends I was already close with. I became that much closer with. There was a friend in Australia where we'd Zoom each other every couple of weeks and it would have to be first, first thing in the morning for me or very late at night for me. And we had these deep, funny conversations and it it just taught me that you've got to cherish friends. Don't take things for granted. And life changes all the time. And there were, I was listening to all of these kind of 
self-help podcasts and all sorts of things and some things helped and some things didn't. And there was something in one of them where it said, when something you think is terrible has happened, consider it as space for what's going to happen next. And I kept trying to have that thought and never believing it. You know, you, you can sort of have these mantras that actually just like, you just think, oh, but I just want to stop feeling so sad. And it doesn't, it didn't yeah. really, didn't feel like a spacious feeling. And then now, I, yes, I completely can see the truth of that. I mean, like you were saying earlier, I mean, 19, it was so young, isn't it? And, and there's such a big difference for most people between 19 and 49. It's crazily young. And I think I had actually done all of this growing over the subsequent years in ways that I hadn't even quite noticed how different I was from the person I was age 19 and how different he was. And because so many of the sort of, so many of the things that I thought would be absent in a marriage when it went wrong were still there. There was still respect. There was still friendship. There was still conversation. There was still kind of physical attraction. So it's kind of like, oh, this is really odd. Marriages don't end when all of these things are there. But I think what was missing was growth, kind of just actually being able to change together and recognize that we changed. And also fun, I think, had gone. And without fun, what's the point of any human relationship, really? Like, I think I still had the fun with my dog and with my children. My ex-husband and I were very good at working very, very hard, but you can't maintain a relationship without a bit of bit of spark, a bit of joy. And so I, things that I then managed to find sort of in those dark, dark days, then when things get better, you it, there's a kind of clarity and you think, oh, this is what life is about. So how does your 50 next year, yeah. aren't you? How, how are you feeling about that? I don't feel too bad. I mean, I haven't got some huge celebration planned. I've never... Yuck, no. No, 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 no. But um, I've been to a couple of friends' 50th this year, and it's an absolute joy to celebrate with people that you've known for 30 years. That I like very much with people that are really wanting to celebrate their own 50th. It's strange. I mean, all of the cliches are true. I and mean, I think it's true of having kids. That thing that when I was younger and my mum would be walking around with me and then I'd bump into friends of hers. She'd go, oh, haven't you grown? And, and you think, yeah, well, of course yeah. I've grown. And you think, I'll never be a boring adult that's saying that. And then you look at your kids and you're like, how did you turn from this tiny little dot into this giant person who's taller than me? And... Yeah, time goes very fast, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. You have to seize moments of joy. And for me, cooking is definitely a daily provider of that. And there aren't that many other things like that. Can I ask you the questions that I always ask at the end? What is your emotional age? When you asked that, my very first thought was eight. I don't know why. It's just come to me as eight. And I don't know. That's fascinating. Any? I was going to say, you, any idea why at all? Um, I picture myself age eight and I, I was, all I wanted was to have a dog. I remember writing down, that I wanted to be a writer and write books that lots of people would read. And then through most of my marriage, I didn't have a dog because my ex-husband hated animals. So three years before he left, he had said that my daughter and I could get a dog. But that's, I just remember the moment of utter unadulterated joy when my dog finally arrived in my life. And I think it was my inner eight-year-old. And I think I am accessing my inner eight-year-old when I cook and when I'm most in the middle of it, just kind of opening a new packet of butter and just thinking this is a kind of golden treasure. 
Yeah. Oh, it's my favourite question. I love all the answers. Can you give us a book recommendation? It can be something you've read lately. It doesn't have to be fiction. It can be a cookbook or it can just, or it can be something that you've, has had an impact on your life, you know, from young. I think How to Eat by Nigella has been one of the ones that has just kept me company over a 20 year period. I think I'm pretty sure it came out in 1999, which was the year my oldest son was born. I remember just opening it thinking, oh, I just want to kind of devour every page of this book. It just felt like it was a friend talking to me so kindly and wisely. And the number of, I've gone onto my third copy because it's just fallen apart through being so spattered and stuck together. I think our relationship with cookbooks is so interesting because so many people say that they don't use them, that they, they read them but they don't actually use them. And I think something about the spatter that is a, shy, a, a sign of like... It's a sign of true love, fierce love. And even talking yeah. back to them, like I found soon after I was first married, one of the books I was cooking out of was First um, River Cafe Cookbook. And I was it was quite a strange emotion, series of emotions looking back at it. And I'd written all these things like made this and I'd written my husband's name and I'd written what he thought of it. But then I'd sometimes written, add more herbs or do this or do that. Like I'd, I was being quite bossy with that cookbook. And I think that that's like a true friendship. There should be a bit of give and take. There should be, I think cookbooks, they're just, like you say, they're designed to be used. They're designed to be argued with and added to and spattered. What advice would you give younger women? Be kind to yourself about your eating and know that, you, that food is something that is meant to give you joy. Yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a tough one. It's a really it? tough one. But I think it's a good, even if it, you can't actually catapult yourself to that state right away, immediately now, I think it's a good lodestar to hold on to. You're allowed to eat and food should be a pleasure. You are, you're, whatever your body is, you deserve food. That is a sort of essential thing. And it, it's almost too obvious to say, but it's just that my daughter's 20 and I, I just have known so many young women can't allow themselves that first thought. Who is your old bird role model? So an older woman who's inspired you? Claudia Roden. Why? Um, She is, I just think she's an absolute goddess. Um, All of her books are remarkable. And I've interviewed her and met her a few times. And she's as delightful in person as you would hope on the page. But I look back to her first book, A Book of Middle Eastern Food, which just sort of quietly came out at the end of the 1960s. And it's just so hard to think back that when she wrote that book, most people in Britain didn't know what hummus was. It was only when I interviewed her that she spoke very quietly, but with great conviction about this horrible racism that she and people in her family encountered. She'd arrived from Egypt and she'd have people saying to her things like, oh, Middle Eastern food, it must be all just eyeballs. Just there was this kind of overtone of xenophobia in a very quiet, very gracious way. She simply addressed that by showing us quite clearly, no, look, there is this astonishing civilization, series of civilizations of cooking in the Middle East, which are something to be celebrated and learnt from and enjoyed and eaten. I think she's influenced generations of subsequent cooks and chefs. I think she's remarkable. Her last cookbook was one called Med, which she produced in her mid-80s. And she sort of said when she turned 80, she suddenly decided what she really wanted to do was have more dinner parties. 
<laughs> so she started having friends around, I think twice a week. And then the recipes that she cooked for them became the foundation of that cookbook. And I think that's amazing that after all of those decades of producing recipes, you can be so unjaded, both about friendships and about food, that you think what I really need a bit more of in my life as Claudia Roden is to cook more. <laughs> she's my goddess. She's, I think she's magnificent. She sounds amazing. What's your superpower? I always used to say it's a bit of a stupid superpower. If you can't open a jar, jam jar, it isn't really a superpower, it's just a trick. You just bang it on the side of the table and you can open any. But it, that still, it works. It works, though. So, jar, jar opening jar is your superpower. Is superpower. I don't know. It's just that's something where sometimes, you know, when you have kids, it's quite hard to impress them doing anything. And my very laconic oldest son, who isn't really impressed by anything, is quite impressed when I do that. So I probably have a few others. Yeah. <laughs> um, and last one, how many fucks do you give? I wish I gave fewer. I'm tr- I am getting much, much better about saying, not my problem, just kind of moving on. But I do agonize about things, I have to say. I worry, one of the things that have always taught me is, you can't control what other people think. You definitely can't make them love you. You definitely can't make them stay. So that was really, really liberating. I mean, horrible at first, but then liberating in terms of thinking, oh no, I can't control what anyone thinks. So maybe that made me give fewer fucks. I don't know. I think I still, <laughs> I had quite capable of going into spirals of self-doubt and second guessing myself. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like my conversations with Asma Mir and Marina Benjamin. You'll find a link to them in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. If you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras, and more. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 